So what do you do when you read through the Bible and you come to a genealogy? I bet you say, oh, great. <laughs> I love to read genealogies. I love to pronounce all the names in Scripture that I'm not sure how to pronounce. And the tendency is just kind of, you just jump over it. You skip over it. Well, I have to confess that in, I guess, 35 years of ministry, I've never preached on the genealogy of Jesus. I've just skipped over it. And as I studied this passage, I thought to myself, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is he going to say from a genealogy? I thought that for a long time. That's why I never preached on it. (laughs) But I believe there are some lessons we can learn as we look at this genealogy. However, I'm going to skip over Um, But I'll hopefully pull some things from this passage that illustrate God's great grace given in the genealogy of Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for every verse, every word, every phrase given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Some things we don't fully grasp in Scripture. Some things we wonder why it was written there, and yet, Lord, you have a purpose in it all. And I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that you would teach us what you would want us to learn. Help us to see Jesus here clearly and his grace, his mercy that he has poured out upon us. In his name we pray. Amen. You probably don't have a detailed genealogy like this. Do you? Can any of you go back? Um, well, there's 14, 14, and 14 generations that are spoken of in verse 17. Any of you go back that far in your genealogy? I doubt it. However, if you want to find out a little bit about your roots, go to Ancestry.com, right? And you can uh, do a DNA test and you can find out at least a, a little bit about your uh, roots. However, I would warn you, you may discover, if you do that, that you aren't really who you think you are. Okay? There there have been people who have discovered that, some from our own church. There's a man in our congregation who thought he was 100% Swede. He discovered he's actually 29% Finn. Yeah, praise the Lord. Some Some of you would say that. Some of you would say that 29% Finn makes a good sweet even better. Others of you might say, if I found that out, I'd probably need to go to counseling, right? Yeah. So beware, you never know what you might learn about your roots. Well, reading through a genealogy is probably not the most exciting thing that you could ever do. I think we'd all agree. But there's obviously something important about genealogies in Scripture because we find them in, in many different places. And we would say especially that there's something important about the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this passage of Scripture clearly establishes that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's obviously important to us. But it also illustrates, in several ways, the greatness of God's grace to us. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning. How the genealogy 
of Jesus shows to us the great and marvelous grace of God. So we're going to count backward this morning from the number four to the number one as we look at this passage of Scripture. And notice, first of all, that the greatness of God's grace is included or is seen in the inclusion of four outcasts, four outcasts. As you examine this genealogy, you will notice that it includes four women. And this was something that would have been immediately noticed by the Jews of that day to actually see women included in the genealogy. Michael Green says this might not seem strange in today's climate, but it was startling in Jewish genealogy. So to see a woman's name mentioned, let alone four women mentioned, that was quite striking. But what makes this even more striking, more surprising, is that all four of the women mentioned in this genealogy, for one reason or another, could be considered an outcast. Notice the first woman mentioned in verse 3 is a woman by the name of Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Genesis 38 gives, gives us quite a story of this Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. She was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur, but the Lord took his life because of his sin. And so Tamar was left as a widow, and she married then the brother of Ur, whose name was Anan. And he also was died by the, by the hand of the Lord. So there was one brother left, and his name was Shelah, or Shelah. And Judah promised that he would give to Tamar this third son of his. But he never did. And we assume, possibly, that he thought Tamar was part of the reason why these first two sons of his died. And so he decided he was not going to give his third son to Tamar because he's concerned that he'd die as well. Well, Tamar came up with a plan. She disguised herself as a harlot and she tricked Judah into having relations with her. Thus, two things made her an outcast of Israel. She was a Canaanite, so she was a foreigner. She was not part of the covenant of Israel. And having committed incest, she was immoral. Yet, Tamar is included in Christ's genealogy. We jump down to verse 5 and we find the second woman by the name of Rahab. We probably recognize her name maybe more than Tamar. Rahab is remembered most for hiding the men who spied out the city of Jericho. But she too was an outcast of Israel like Tamar. She was a Gentile woman as well as an immoral woman. She was worse than Tamar, I suppose we could say, because she didn't pretend to be a harlot. She didn't disguise herself as a harlot. She was, right? She was a prostitute. Until she met the Lord, she made her living that way. For most families, it would be embarrassing, I'm sure, to discover in your ancestry that you had a, a prostitute. Yet, she's included in Christ's genealogy. 
Verse 5, we also see a woman by the name of Ruth. And although Ruth's behavior certainly wasn't like that of Tamar or Rahab, she too was an outcast. She came from the country of Moab, which was one of Israel's enemies. Besides that, her ancestors were the result of incest. Are you seeing a pattern here? When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot's daughters lost their husbands. Remember, they were the ones that thought Lot was joking when he said that the city of, of Sodom was going to be destroyed. And so they didn't leave when Lot and his wife and daughters left. They, they died. And so here were these daughters without husbands, and they were thinking, what are we going to do? You know, we don't have any husbands to have children with. So Genesis tells us, they said, here's what they said, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with we may preserve our family through our father. So Lot's daughters committed incest with him. And this is where the Moabites and the Ammonites came from. Ruth was a Moabite. Her ancestors committed incest. The fourth woman mentioned then is Bathsheba. Verse 6. We know the story of Bathsheba quite well. She was the one who committed adultery with, with David while her husband Uriah was battling, fighting with David's army. And yet she too is included in the genealogy of Jesus. All four of these women were clearly outcasts of Israel. And yet Matthew includes them all. Now we could ask the question, why, why did Matthew include them? He certainly didn't have to. He could have included just the fathers like he did in the rest of the genealogy. That's what Luke did in his gospel. I think Matthew included them to illustrate the greatness of God's grace. It's as if he's saying Jesus came for these people too. He came for the Tamars and the Ruths. He came for the Bathshebas of the world. And that is obvious as you look at the ministry of Jesus, right? He came to seek and to save the lost. He cared for the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinners. They were the ones that were welcomed by him, the religious leaders. They didn't think they needed a savior. And so they, Jesus had very strong words to share about them. But these four women in this genealogy really give us a picture of the ministry of Jesus. Why did He come? He came for people like these. He came for people like us. We don't deserve His grace either. But Jesus came for us. The greatness of God's grace is seen in the inclusion of these four outcasts. We count backwards and we go from four to three. The greatness of God's grace is seen in the history of three eras, three periods of time. Matthew summarizes his genealogy in verse 17 by describing three periods of time. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, there's the first generation are 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Three eras of time 
that Matthew divides this whole section into three eras, three periods of history. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things we could say about all three periods of history. We could be here a long time, couldn't we? Maybe just stay here till tomorrow's Christmas Eve service, huh? We could say a lot, but in all of these periods of time, the people of Israel had their spiritual struggles. And with each successive era of time, things got worse. <laughs> During the period from Abraham to David, there were, there were several godly men who led the people of Israel. We could think of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and, and Joshua. But this period also included 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. The people of Israel wanted to get rid of Moses and get another leader and go back to Egypt. It also included the time of the judges. What's that phrase we see repeated in the book of Judges? That each man did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds like today, doesn't that? A dark time. And yet... God was at work during that time of history. The period from David to the exile to Babylon was the time of the kings. And things continued on a downward slide. One commentator describes this period as a period of almost uninterrupted decline, degeneracy, apostasy, and tragedy. And think of it, all 19 of Israel's kings were evil. Twelve out of twenty of Judah's kings were also evil. And this period of time culminated then in the destruction of Jerusalem, the deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon. They refused to listen to the prophets who came to them over and over and over, pleading with them to repent. They would not do it. The book of, of Second Chronicles said, until there was no remedy. And the captivity took place. And they paid an awful price. And then the third period, from the exile to Christ, was the worst of the three. One commentator described it as Israel's dark ages. And yet, through all three of these periods of time, God did not abandon His people. And I would call that a powerful expression of God's wonderful grace. He did not forget about the promise He made to Abraham. He continued to work with a people who were rebellious and, and disobedient, keeping that promise alive that a Savior would one day come. But you know, when you think about it, those of us who are Gentiles, there's a greater expression of grace for us. At least the people of Israel were recipients of God's covenant. We weren't. We weren't. Listen to how Paul describes us. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember, here's what we were, that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's us. Separate, excluded, strangers, no hope without God. But then the good news, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And how did that happen? You go back to Ephesians 2 earlier in that chapter, verses 8 and 9. What is it? By grace, you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. So from generation to generation to generation to generation, God has poured out His grace upon mankind. And His faithfulness, Psalm 100 says, endures to all, all generations. Aren't you thankful for that? Our generation has not been forsaken by God. Jesus came to save us, to die for us, to pay the price for we who were excluded, who were separated, who were far off, but brought near by the blood of Jesus. Four outcasts. Three eras of time. What comes next? You mathematicians. Four, three, two. All right. What's the two? The greatness of God's grace is seen in the descendants of two men. So we look at the first verse of this text. We have two men mentioned, two great Old Testament men, Abraham and David. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We know about Abraham and David. Well, we know a lot about those two men. Abraham is referred in Scripture as to God's friend, the friend of God. David, a man after God's own heart, right? And yet, as we look at all that the Bible says about Abraham and David, what must we conclude? Were they sinners like we are? Were they in need of the grace of God like we are? I mean, the record is, is absolutely clear, isn't it? Absolutely clear. Think of David. Committed adultery with Bathsheba. Had Uriah killed in battle. Think of Abraham lying about his wife, uh, had a son through an Egyptian uh, woman by the name of, of Hagar. And you follow through and you look at their descendants and what do you see? You see a trail of sin, don't you? You look at Isaac lying about Rebekah, Jacob steal, stealing his brother's blessing, Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, Judah committing adultery. You follow the line of David. What do you see? Solomon turned away from the Lord after, what, how many women in his life? Was it 300 wives and 700 concubines? How do you, how do you even imagine that? Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, all evil kings of Judah. And even the good kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, they had their faults too, didn't they? 
They needed the grace of God as well. And yet God continued to work with them. God continued to call them. He continued to conform them to the image of of Jesus. And he worked through sinful men to accomplish his purpose. The Bible is clear on that, isn't it? He worked through sinful men. And as a pastor, I'm grateful for that because there are times when Satan would whisper in your ear, Who are you? Who are you to stand up in front of the congregation and preach the Word of God? You're not so good yourself. I have to say, yeah, that's exactly right. That's my wife. But Jesus died for me, right? He cleansed me, shed His blood for me. And by His grace and His grace alone... Can I stand before you today? And so God has worked through Abraham and David. And if he worked through men like that, he can work through you and me as well. Four outcasts, three eras of time, two men. Who do you think the number one is? I hope you know him. The greatness of God's grace is seen in the gift of of one son. One son. Yeah, we could spend hours looking at the lives of all the people mentioned in this genealogy. But we need to remember that the focus here, the focus is on Jesus. It begins with Jesus in verse 1, right? The record of the genealogy of Jesus. It ends with Jesus in verse 16. And it establishes the fact then that Jesus is grace personified. With the coming of Jesus, God gave the greatest gift that he could ever have given. No greater gift than to give the life of his son. In Jesus, grace allows anyone to be included. Isn't that the message of this this genealogy? In Jesus, grace allows anyone to be included. If Matthew was trying to impress us with Jesus' earthly heritage, he failed. (laughs) Right? He failed. Many of those who were ancestors of Jesus had nothing to be proud of. Nothing to be proud of. But if Matthew was trying to impress us with God's divine grace, he succeeded, didn't he? He certainly did. In Jesus, grace allows anyone to be included. And then also in Jesus, grace cannot be defeated. When God made his promise that he would one day send a Savior, he made it on the basis of his grace. And were that not the case, God would have given up on the people of Israel a long, long time ago. Eras ago. They continually turned their back on Him. and Were they worthy of His blessing? Absolutely not. But that's what grace is, right? That's what grace is. God's gift to the unworthy. His love displayed to those who don't deserve it. There's a man I've heard pray on several occasions. 
And almost every time he says this, help us to be worthy recipients of your grace. And every time I hear that, I say, you know, there's something not right there. <laughs> how, do you be, how are you worthy of something that's unmerited, right? How do you become worthy of grace? It, 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 it doesn't fit, does it? Who is grace given to? The unworthy. Is that you? You bet it is. It's me too. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a nice guy like me? No. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I found. I was blind. But now I see. And the longer I live, the more I realize how amazing that is. Because the longer you walk with the Lord, the more the light of Jesus, the more the light of His Word shines upon us, and the more light, the more it reveals how by nature, just how wretched you are. When you got up this morning, was there was the sun up yet? Did any of you get up before the sun? Okay. It's kind of dark in your room, right? But as more light comes in, you, you see more things. Probably see dust and hairs on your dresser and that you didn't see before. But when the light shines, the light reveals. And because Jesus is the light of the world, He reveals to us our sin. And that's a good thing. Because if we don't see our sin, do we think we need a Savior? No. But when we realize just how much we need the grace of God, that's when the gospel becomes precious. That's when we rejoice in God's amazing grace that is so sweet and so wonderful. Someone has given the following outline of John 3.16. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world the greatest company, that He gave the greatest act, His only begotten Son the greatest gift, that whoever believes the greatest simplicity in Him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. That makes God's grace pretty wonderful, doesn't it? Pretty wonderful. I read a story about a young girl whose mother was reading to her the third chapter of John. And she paused after verse 16 and said to her little daughter, Don't you think that verse is amazing, honey? The little child thought for a minute and said no. And so the mother thought maybe she didn't understand. So she asked the question again. Don't you think that verse is amazing? And the little girl said no. And she said, well, why do you say that? 
honey. And she said, it would be amazing if it were anyone else, mommy. But it's really just like God. Yeah, she understood it, right? It's really just like God. He so loved the world that he gave his son for you and for me. So I need to ask you today, do you know this son? Do you know this Jesus? Have you embraced him? Do you, have you received that, that great gift, that great assurance, that great possession of having eternal life? That's what Christmas is all about. I don't care if you have Lepsa and Ludafisk and, and uh, Krumkaka and I don't know what else you, you eat at Christmas time and presents and, and family, as wonderful as it is. If you don't have Jesus, you miss the boat. You need to know him. And he invites you today to embrace that wonderful grace, God's great grace given to us in the life of his son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, even in a genealogy, we see who you are and why you came. And thank you, Lord, that we can embrace that good news, the wonderful grace of Jesus that is poured out upon those who would put their trust in him. Lord, do your work in our hearts today. If there's someone here that really doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, would you call them, draw them to yourself, cause them to see their need, and to respond by trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.